This is 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and following. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let me pray for us as we open God's word together this morning. Father, we hear these words about having hearts that condemn us. And many of us admit that we are Christians here in this room, and yet we so often live under the condemnation of our own hearts that tell us things that debilitate us. We pray that you would help us to understand what you mean in this passage. Help us to understand how we can live like those people it talks about with confidence in our faith. Help us to learn how we might be able to listen to your spirit, live confidently in the faith, and learn to listen to and trust in and rely on and walk in your love every moment of every day of our lives. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever feel condemned by your own heart? Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and just feel like a terrible person? You kind of have a, a screenplay going on in your mind of all the things that you did the day before, or the week before, or how you treated people or didn't treat people or who you spent time or didn't spend time with and just feel like, you know what, I, just feel down? Have you ever done something in your life that you feel like changed your relationship with God? Like you sinned in a certain way and feel like God is just, he's forgiving you, but you've just, you just feel like your life is never going to be back the way that it could have been if you didn't do that thing. You ever try to pray and you feel like God's not listening? Try to engage in, in Christian community, but just feel like, you know what? A person like me does not deserve to step into a place like that. You know, those kinds of things. Have you ever had condemning thoughts in your heart or in your mind revolving around your relationship with Christ? I think if you have, you're not alone. You know, I, John does talk about those people whose heart do not condemn them. And, and the whole time this week as I read his words about people who have hearts that don't condemn them, I just kept thinking the phrase, it must be nice, right? It must be nice to have hearts that don't condemn you because this is how he describes it. He says, dear friends, in verse 21, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We receive from God anything we ask. We keep his commands. We do what pleases God. We believe in the name of his son, Jesus. We love one another. We keep God's commands. He lives in us. We live in him and we know it by his spirit. Maybe you read that and you're like, amen, that's me. Or maybe you read that and you say, yeah, that's not me. My heart is 
condemning me all the time. I just am crippled by these thoughts. And if that's you, I do want to say you're not alone. I was thinking this week of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Have you ever read that? Where he starts wrestling what it feels like to live in this body that keeps betraying us and we can never do the things that we feel like we should be able to do for God. If you've never heard it, here are Paul's words in Romans chapter 7. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. He says these words, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Paul says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. Paul says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That's the Apostle Paul. I think there's something broken in a lot of our hearts where where it doesn't really matter what God says about us, we are convinced otherwise. I know he says that he's our loving father. We don't feel like that. I know he says that there's no condemnation for us. We don't feel that. I know he says he's forgiven us. We don't feel forgiven and we feel guilty walking in forgiveness. Instead, we walk in this place where we just have this weight of condemnation over our lives all the time. And the good news is that the Apostle John is not writing his epistle to confident Christians. He's writing his epistle to confused Christians. The hopeless people, to to folks who do lack this confidence, who feel this feeling in their hearts that something's off in their faith, and he's trying to serve them and minister to them and put back the pieces of their faith again. And so if that's you this morning, these are the words that the Apostle Paul, John, uses to share with those of us who feel condemned by our own hearts. It's 1 John 3.20. John says, if our hearts condemn us, We know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. If our hearts condemn us, we know God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. You know, if you're in a place of condemnation in your own heart, this probably isn't very helpful to you. It kind of feels like you go to the doctor and you're like, doctor, I I think I have cancer. Imagine your doctor says, you know what? God knows if you have cancer. He knows everything. Like, all right, but what about my test, right? What about some diagnostics, right? Like, that's amazing, but you're not a pastor, you're a doctor, right? But then when you go to a pastor and say, pastor, I feel condemned. I feel like I'm a sinner. I feel like I never really gave my life to Jesus. I feel like my faith is broken. I feel like God will never forgive me. I feel discouraged all the time. And the pastor says, well, God knows your heart. He knows everything. So he knows I'm a disaster? Like, what do you? But that's not what John's trying to do. What John is trying to say as we launch into this topic is that if you are a believer in Jesus and your heart is trying to condemn you in your faith, your heart is most likely trying 
to lie to you and make you believe something that is not true about yourself. So this morning, as we look at the text that follows here, what we're going to talk about is how, how do you get to a place that you start to truly believe the truth that God feels about you and discard the lies that are not coming from God, but coming from the evil one? And this week, I had an opportunity to sit down with a woman in my office who, who was kind of struggling with this very thing. A lot of different voices in her head and in her heart and her life were all telling her absolutely diametrically opposed things about God's feelings towards her. She said, Danny, I feel like I'm starting to sense this call from God maybe to step into full-time ministry and, and go to seminary and start to get a biblical education degree. But, but at the same time, I, I feel like there are these voices in my head telling me not to. How do I know who to listen to? Like, well, what do the voices say? So, well, the voices tell me I'm going to hell. The voices tell me I don't really love God. The voices tell me that I've already been to hell. I'm like, wait, what? She said, well, I've had some experiences in my past where I, I felt like I've been tormented by demons in my life. And she said, not, not like metaphorical demons, like legitimate, real demons. She said, I had this experience at one point where I this feeling came over me and I started talking in this strange, deep man's voice and saying all these terrible, erroneous things and the people around me were trying to cast these demons out of me. She says, but I still hear their voices in me and they're telling me all these things. I'm like, don't listen to those voices. She said, well, I've also had voices in my life, different pastors and church leaders and different denominations who've told me all types of different things. I've had people tell me that God can't use me because I'm a woman. I've had people tell me in churches that God can't use me because I've been demonized. I've heard people tell me that, that I just need to trust that God is not what I think that he is, but that Jesus is. And she started naming this crazy heretical thought. She said, I've got all these different thoughts coming at me all the time. And I just feel like they're all in my brain and I don't know which voice to listen to. Which one's from God? And which ones are lies from the enemy? Now John tells us that if we want to start to discern which voices are from God and which are from the enemy, he says this is how we know it. He says we know that God, that God lives in us by the spirit he gave us. So then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John uses this word spirit kind of loosely in, in his writings. Sometimes he's talking about literal spirits, like the Holy Spirit, or like demonic spirits, these spirits that come in and, and say things in our minds or in our hearts or try to accuse us or confuse us, or the Spirit of God who's trying to speak truth and love to us. He talks about like literal spirits, but he also uses this word spirit to talk about teachings and teachers. He talks about these false prophets, like they're these false spirits, that almost like these doctrines of demons are writing on the words of these false prophets. He says, so listen to people whom the spirit of God is flowing through, not people, not voices, whom the spirit of the devil is flowing through, and you need to learn how to distinguish the voices of truth from the voices of error. And the hard thing about that is a lot of times the voices sound very similar. A lot of times, the things that are untrue in our minds that we're thinking about all the time were planted there by spiritually-minded people. I talked to somebody one time who, when she was growing up, she was at a church that brought in this guest speaker. And the guest speaker had this passing comment in his sermon. He was talking about doubts in the faith. And he said, some of you out there are not 100% sure that you are saved today. 
He said, I'm here to tell you, if you are not 100% certain in your salvation, then I am 100% sure that you are damned to hell for eternity. She said, I kind of knew when he said that, that he was not telling the truth. But ever since that moment in my life, I cannot stop shaking that thought that I am not truly a Christian because I have doubts. It came from a spiritual leader. I met with a couple one time who was talking about a time in their life when they lost a child. And they said that in the midst of their grief, one of the leaders at their church came to them and, and helped them understand, they said, that, that their child passed away because they didn't have enough faith for their child's healing. Right? And then, you know, we can go to those people and say, hey, that's not true. I don't know who those people are. Don't listen to those people. But if you've been one of those people who've heard a word like that, even though you know in your brain it's not true, you can't stop thinking about it. That's what you wonder about late at night. You're thinking, maybe that's true. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I did this. Maybe that's why my life's not working. Maybe that's why I can't get a job today. Maybe that's why I can't get married today. Maybe God's still mad at me because of this or that. And it's like this earworm comes in and we can't stop thinking about this lie that was given to us by someone who acted like a spiritual leader. In the New Testament, it says that those who speak should speak as though they're speaking the very words of God. And I think there's two reasons that the, the writer says that. Number one, because there should be some gravity for any one of us who steps up in front of a classroom of children or middle schoolers or adults or wherever it is and assumes to speak on God's behalf, that we should realize that in that moment we're speaking on God's behalf. And on the other side of that, I think the reason that this phrase comes out, that we should speak as if we're speaking the very words of God, is because we need to realize that when you are in spiritual authority and you open your mouth to teach, your audience will hear your words as if they are coming from God himself. And so if you are in a place of spiritual leadership in a classroom or in a church community, and you tell someone their baby died because of them, they hear God himself saying that to them. And you just did that. So if we're supposed to test the spirits to see which ones are from God, it gets complicated in knowing that most of the things that plague us are things that we're not really sure. Is God really mad at us? Is God really punishing us? Is our doubt really going to keep us from heaven? Is our child's death really our fault? Is the fact that nothing's working for us because there's something wrong in our lives? So have we not repented hard enough, right? It sounds spiritual, so how do we know what is true and what is false? John says it this way. He says, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. All right, it seems simple enough. Uh, the hard thing about this is I've talked to enough crazy people to know that a lot of them believe that Jesus technically came in the flesh. Right? So I don't think this is a, a sweep it under the rug, like if someone's preaching a bunch of crazy theology, it's not like the secret question. You say, hey, real quick, do you believe Jesus came in the flesh? And like, no, it's like, oh, I knew it, I knew it, right? <laughs> there are a lot of people in this world who will tell you that Jesus came in the flesh, but they're crazy heretics, right? So he's not trying to give you a catch-all, like secret password for the Christian club or anything. That's not what he's doing. John's doing two things. First, John is trying to combat the very specific heresy that had plagued the churches in the communities to which he was writing. 
There was these heresies around the the nature of Jesus and and the relation between his divinity and his humanity and when he became God and if he was God and if his flesh part of him was God and all this weird, crazy stuff. So first, John's trying to say, all those people are crazy people, right? Don't listen to any of those people who've been teaching you this wacky stuff about Jesus. Kick them out, right? We've talked about that already. Second, John is trying to lay a foundational truth that I think can be helpful for all of us in any time in human history, which is this. When we're trying to evaluate what is true and what is false in a spiritual sense, we need to consider the source. And we need to make sure that the source of spiritual wisdom coming at us is a source that is sourced in orthodox Christian understanding of Jesus and his work and his person and his nature and his ministry on planet Earth. This, This phrase, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is probably better translated anyone who believes that Jesus is Christ come in the flesh. And it's like this mini doctrinal statement that John is dropping on them, saying, okay, hold on. The apostles have all determined that Jesus, Jesus who walked the earth, this is who he was. He was the Messiah. He was fully God. He was fully man. He was in the flesh. He came from heaven to earth in that flesh as God to redeem his people. This is the orthodox apostolic Jesus. So John is saying, before you listen to someone, ask yourself, Do they truly believe in the real Jesus that was believed upon by the apostles and passed down through generations through the church? Now, this is how John starts his letter. He says, I'm not telling you stuff that I'm making up, right? This is what I saw. This is what I touched. I reached out and touched with my own hands, right? What I proclaim to you concerning the word of life is what I've seen with my own eyes, John says. We heard these things. Us apostles, we saw these things. We lived these things. We walked with Jesus and we passed them on to you. This is the community of faith that is trustworthy. Stick with us. And if you follow the history of the church, you'll see in the first few centuries, much effort was put into crystallizing the doctrine of what the apostles believed about Jesus and codifying it. They had councils about it, wrote creeds about it. You can read those creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Read through these things where they explain exactly who John and the others believed that Jesus Christ was when he came to earth, when he walked this earth, when he died for sins, when he rose to new life, when he ascended into heaven, when his spirit came. Understand these things because if you're going to discern truth from error, what you need to do is filter the teachings and the teachers that you're hearing through the lens of orthodox Christian foundational doctrine. And the truth is that when you're plagued with thoughts that are condemning you, I'm 100% sure that the thoughts that are condemning you as a believer are not from God and are lies from the enemy that do not line up with a Christian understanding of how God's relationship with humankind works. This is what some of your friends have told you. Right? When you went to your small group and said, I just got to tell you, this is how I feel sometimes. And they said, that's not true, right? You don't believe them, but they're right. The way to discern truth from error is to filter it through an orthodox understanding of how Christians view the world. Now, I wish I could have sat with my friend who was eight years old or whatever when that evangelist told her she was going to hell. Because I would have showed her in the Bible when a man with doubts came to Jesus. And Jesus said, anything's possible for him who believes. And the guy felt this like guilt on him, like, oh no, I don't believe enough. And he said, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And we see that Jesus was pleased with that prayer and granted his request. I love to show him where Jesus says, you want to see how much faith it takes to, to do something miraculous, to move a mountain? A mustard seed amount, the smallest imaginable amount, because it's not about the amount of faith that you exert. It's about the fact that you've exerted faith in Jesus at all. He does the heavy lifting. I'd love to combat those lies with some truth. I'd love to sit down with a couple who feels like they are responsible for the child's death and show them in the scriptures where Jesus directly deals with that stuff. When the man who was born with a disability is walking the earth and disciples ask Jesus, what made him this way? Did he sin? Did his parents sin? And Jesus steps in and says, whoa, whoa, that's not how all this works. It's not this man's sin. It's not his parents' sin. This man is this way. So the work of God may be demonstrated in his life through this. And he heals him. And when I met with that woman who was wrestling with a thousand voices, I finally said, listen, I, I don't know whether or not you should go to seminary, but I hear a lot of lies coming out of your mouth that you think is true. So all I want to do today is I want to just say some things that are true, and I want you to go home and think about them. Right? And so I said, okay, you're saying that your sin has separated you from God. So do you know the Bible says that, that God removes our sin from us? I know you said that you asked for forgiveness, but God didn't give it to you. Did you know that 1 John 1, 9 says that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness? I know you say that you're not going to heaven because you've messed up too many times, but have you read where, where Jesus says that my sheep know my voice and no one can snatch them out of my hand? Have you seen in Jude where it says that we are kept in Christ Jesus, that we will persevere to the end if God has called us, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion? This is the truth. Right, so take these, these pieces of truth, put them into your brain, and let them start fighting against all the lies that are untrue about yourself. Right, the, the foundational thing that I want all of us to leave with this morning is that there are lies in our brains. And the way to combat lies is with the truth. And this kind of begs the question, how well do you know the truth? And the Apostle Paul talks about transformation happening through the renewal of our minds. He talks about the fact that we can test what the Lord's will is and do the Lord's will by having mental renewal. Paul talks about taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. But we can't do that if we don't have a foundational understanding of what Christians believe. Right? If Christians have been passing down the same faith for 2,000 years, has it been passed down to you? Or do you know what, what the significance is that Jesus visited earth could you understand why it matters that he is God in human flesh? Do you know what it means that he's fully man and fully God? Do you know how that affects the sacrifice that he made on our behalf on the cross and the significance of Good Friday? Or do you understand that the glory of the resurrection on Easter and why it matters for eternal purposes and for the kingdom that started in that moment and never will end? Or do you understand the ascension and the beauty of Christ sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for us. Do you understand the Spirit's work in all that and how the Spirit came into our lives to regenerate us and lead us towards the Father? Do you know those things? Maybe you, maybe you do. Great, right? But if you don't understand the significance of basic, basic Christian doctrine, when you go to filter the lies through the truth, there's no filter there. Right? Imagine trying to make coffee without a filter. Right? You're just pouring water making grindy groundwater stuff, right? That's what's happening in your brain, right? You need a filter of orthodox Christian theology through which all the lies and errors from the enemy can be filtered out. 
So maybe your next step this morning is, is to go to the bookstore. Right? Pick up a Christian theological reader. Right? Go to our seminars. Learn the basics, the foundations of what we believe up here and how we flesh that out into practice. Maybe to join a small group and start opening up the scriptures with a community of people weekly or even in your own home, just opening the Bible and reading it for yourself. Or maybe you need to find a course that you can take to help you understand basic Christian theology and doctrine and the history of the church and theological uh, development over time and historical theology. Maybe you need those things because if the work of Christianity is primarily and at the beginning sourced in your brain, then your brain is a tool that God has given you to do spiritual work. And you want to sharpen it. And Paul says knowledge puffs up and love builds up. That's true, right? There are way too many people that have their head in the clouds. They know way too much theology and they're debating about all these pharisaical things about angels dancing on heads of pins, right? Don't be that person. What I'm saying is develop a basic understanding of orthodox historical Christian doctrine through which you can filter all the lies and truth that are coming into your eyes and ears and brain every moment of every day. And some of you, that's what you need to do. But at the same time, I get it. If, if you're lying up in the middle of the night, plagued with doubt and fear, a systematic theology textbook on your nightstand is not going to do much help. <laughs> if that's you, if you're in a place where your heart is condemning you, yes, develop your worldview. But first, there needs to be some heart surgery before there can be some heart development. As we prepared for the series, one of the, one of the passages of reading that struck me the most was the, the introduction to a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in that introduction, he, he talks about the way that, that sometimes we find ourselves falling onto the wrong path, on the wrong road, and we just keep stumbling in the dark, getting farther and farther away from the truth. And so I, I want you guys to hear this foreword from Great Divorce as it's read to us this morning. So listen to C.S. Lewis' words. We are not living in a world where all roads are the radii of a circle and where all, if followed long enough, will therefore draw gradually nearer and finally meet in the center. Rather, we live in a world where every road, after a few miles, forks into two, and then each of those forks into two again, and at each fork, you must make a decision. Even on a biological level, life is not like a pool, it's, it's more like a tree. It does not move toward unity, but away from it, and the creatures grow further apart as they increase in perfection, good as it ripens, becomes continually more different, not just from evil, but from other good. I do not think that all of those who choose the wrong road perish, but the rescue consists in being put back onto the right road. A wrong sum can be put right, but only by going back until you find the error and working it afresh from that point, never by simply going on. Evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit or else not. It is still either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to obtain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe to be sure that anyone who reaches heaven 
will find that what he abandoned was precisely nothing. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation waiting for him. In that sense, it will be true for those who have completed their journey and for no others to say that good is everything and heaven everywhere. But we, at this end of the road, we must not try to anticipate that retrospective vision. If we do, we're likely to embrace the false and disastrous idea that everything is good and everywhere is heaven. What Lewis is trying to draw out is that when something erroneous exists in your life or in your mind, it doesn't just get naturally fixed over time. Right? So like if, you, if you've got a bad worldview and a bad way of looking at something that happened to you and you have a decision to make in life, that bad worldview will affect your decision and all of a sudden you're walking down a pathway away from where you should be. And then the next decision, you take another turn and you're walking farther and farther away. So the longer you go without dealing with this bad worldview, the farther you get away from the pathway of truth. And and Lewis says, you can't just wait and hope it gets better because you're getting farther away. We got to go back to the source and start over, right the wrongs, and then start walking down the path the right way again. And this is what John starts to do with his listeners as he starts to put back together the pieces of their hearts that have been broken by all these false teachers. He goes and reassures them of their salvation, first of all. This is 1 John 4, verse 4. He says, you, dear children, are from God. You have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It's like John's looking at his audience, the church that he has ministered to, and he says, I know you guys. I see you wrestling. I see you struggling. I see that glimpse of God in you, but at the same time, you feel like you're not good enough. I see all that. Let me tell you, you are Christians. No one struggles with these things who is not a Christian. The reason you're struggling with these things is because the Spirit of God is prompting you to struggle. And no one who has the Spirit of God is not a Christian. You are a believer. Christ lives in you. And John says, let me tell you, that one, that Spirit who is in you, he is greater than all these other voices. He's bigger than those in the world coming at you. He's bigger than the thoughts that plague you. He's bigger than all of this. And he will be victorious if you learn to start listening to him. The same thing John says to his audience, I I say to you this morning, if if you're struggling in your faith and you feel like you're not good enough or you feel like you've messed up too hard or whatever it is, you are a believer in Jesus. And that means the Spirit of God lives in you. And that means that the powerful word of truth is inside you and he can win as you learn to cultivate your relationship with him. And John continues to say, to say it this way. He says, this is how we know we live in him and he in us. He's given us of his spirit and we see and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. When Jesus walked the earth, he spent a lot of time 
coming alongside people whose worldview had been broken by bad religious teachers and bearing with them in grace and kind of carefully and beautifully putting their brains back together again, kind of righting the theological wrongs, helping them see that the way that they think God views them is not the way God views them, helping some of them think that they're not as good as they think they are, helping others to see that, no, it's... You are a broken person and God has mercy and love for you in your time of need. He was constantly rebuilding people's faith. Now this week, if it's your time to start rebuilding your faith, to start with that foundational truth that I'm a believer, I need to listen to the voice of the Spirit and learn to walk in it. There are three things that John gives us as we close in this passage that you can apply to your life today. Number one, know God's love. This is 1 John 4, 16. John says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Know God's love. Right? This isn't even talking about knowledge, like theological knowledge. This word know is talking about a relational knowledge. Like a, not the way you know chemistry, the way you know your best friend. John is saying you need to start to relate with God's love, befriend God's love, invite in God's love, cultivate a relationship with God's love. Don't just know about God. Don't even just know God, but know deeply the love of God. Understand that he truly loves you, that he is a father who is for you, that no one can be against you. Know that. Second, John says, rely on God's love. You know, it's one thing to know your best friend. It's another, another thing to call your best friend when you need to move, Right? And John says, it's one thing to know God's love, but, but it doesn't really count until you start relying on God's love, leaning into it. In those times of darkness, when you feel condemned, to, to rely on God's love in those moments, say, you know what? This can't be true because God loves me and I, I need to live and abide in his love, know his love, rely on his love. And the last thing that we see is John says that we need to live in God's love. As he continues, he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. John says there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. John says you need to know that you're a Christian. Know that the Spirit is capable of developing you into a person who can understand and comprehend the God, love of God as you walk this earth and then know it, rely on it, walk in it, dwell in the midst of God's love and never leave that light and go back into the shadows. If you find yourself in the darkness, feeling terrible, feeling condemned, feeling like God doesn't care about you, feeling all those things, realize that you are in the darkness, get into the light and realize that God loves you. Know it, rely on it, live in it, dwell in his love, John says. One of the things we need to understand is that when we find ourselves condemned, it's because we're in the darkness in our thinking. And God wants to draw us back into the light of his love again. I want to close us this morning with a reading from Romans chapter 8. Uh, this is some excerpts from this amazing passage of scripture that follow up right after Paul says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Right? His next line is, praise be to God through Jesus Christ. And then he starts talking about what is true about the believer because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. So this is a reading from Romans chapter eight. Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus 
Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You're controlled by the spirit, Paul says, if you have the spirit of God living in you. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Paul says the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to their purpose for them. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from God's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together that God would remind us and solidify in us that this is true. Let's pray.